Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Nick Davies, and I'm a programme director here. Thank you very much for joining us for this discussion on how outsourced public services can be made more transparent. Uh, the best part of uh, £300 billion a year is spent by government on external providers. That's a, around a third of total government expenditure. Uh, and that goes to a complex web of organisations, uh, including uh, large contractors, SMEs, charities, uh, housing associations, academy chains, and more. But while the nature of public service delivery has changed, the law has not quite kept up. And there is less information available about outsourced public services than those services that are still delivered in-house. Uh, in particular, as research by the Institute for Government has shown, uh, information about contracts and spending is often incomplete, uh, patchy, uh, limited and hard to join up, while the Freedom of Information Act generally doesn't apply to contractors delivering public services. So what additional information should the government routinely publish about outsourced public services and how can it ensure that data is actually usable? Uh, should the Freedom of Information Act uh, be extended to all providers of public services? Uh, and how can public services be made more transparent without putting an unnecessary burden on providers of those services, particularly uh, SMEs, charities and other small providers? Uh, to discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by this fantastic panel. Uh, our first speaker will be Meg Hillier, MP, uh, the chair of the Public Accounts Committee. Uh, she will be followed by Steve Wood, the Deputy Commissioner for Policy at the Information Commissioner's Office. Third will be Kate Stedman, the Group Strategy and Communications Director at CERCO. Uh, and our final speaker will be Carl Wilding, the Chief Executive of the National Council for Voluntary Organisations. I'm shortly going to hand over to the panellists and they'll each make uh, short introductory remarks. I'll then ask a few questions uh, of the panellists uh, before opening up to a Q&A from the audience. So please do think of uh, questions while they're speaking that you would like to ask. Um, I'd also encourage you to tweet during the event. Uh, we'll be tweeting uh, using our account at IFG events and using the hashtag uh, IFG outsourcing, which might be on the screen behind me. Um, before I hand over to the panellists, uh, I'd like to quickly welcome uh, Michael Luckman from Gowling WLG, who've kindly supported this event to make some opening remarks. Good morning, everyone. No? Yeah, good morning, everyone. Well, welcome to uh, the third, actually, of a series of events that we've been involved in around uh, outsourcing with the IFG. Uh, we looked first at the scale and nature of outsourcing and then looked at some of what worked well and actually some of the areas of reform. And this topic of transparency of transparency came out as one area very much in need of reform. Uh, why are we involved? Well, the first thing is actually we're really big fans of the Institute for Government. They ask really good questions and hold politicians and anyone involved in providing public services very much to account and raise issues that we all need to consider. Second, the public sector matters to us as an organisation. We're one of 12 firms appointed by the government to deal with their major projects and they represent some 15% of our own internal turnover. So that's a really significant client of ours. But third, as you've heard from Nick, it matters to all of us. The government spends some 300 billion on outsourcing. That's, as you've heard, that's a third of public sector spending. So getting this right, delivering value for money, and delivering high quality public services really, really matters to everyone in the country. This is an important topic. Transparency was one of those topics that came out as, as an area for reform. We've seen some high-profile, very public failures in outsourced organisations, uh, where the opaqueness of the relationship between government and private sector was at least considered part to blame. But in addition, the political response has had sometimes, I felt, lacked the information and data to really get into the complexities of the situation as it, as it, as it actually happened. Um, Rupert Soames, your own Rupert Soames has had some own trenchant views on the need for transparency in public sector contracting. It's a matter of importance to us all, and I'm hoping we'll get some clarity and transparency today. Thank you very <laughs> much. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> right, uh, without further ado, over to you, Michael. Thank you. And Michael actually has teed it up very well because transparency is not only important to the, those of us who pay our taxes for government to spend, but actually for those of us as service users. If government doesn't know, 
what's going on in a contract when things do go badly wrong, uh, then things really it really shows. And I won't go into it in detail in my opening remarks, but the Public Accounts Committee was asked by the well, Parliament asked government, told government it had to give the papers um, on Carillion. Uh, to the Public Accounts Committee. We asked to see all the strategic suppliers' information. Um, that's all contracts uh, that are over uh, a million pounds with government as a whole. And it was really interesting to look at them because actually most of it was stuff we knew anyway. Uh, so the idea that it's all secret and hidden behind the scenes um, is, 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 is a bit of a, I think, a bit of smoke and mirrors. Often my Whitehall, interestingly, um, it'll be interesting to hear uh, from our private sector partners, if you like, um, we hear less about commercial confidentiality from the private sector than we do from Whitehall. So we might want to have that discussion later. But I think it's important, there's three reasons really why it's important to improve transparency. The first is, as I've said, this is taxpayers' money. It's public services. And we need accountability on cost, but also on performance. Um, so it's not just about the money. It's actually about how well an organisation uh, is performing in delivering that public service. And when something's going wrong, we should be able to see that. And if it was a government department... We'd be able to put in an FOI, we'd be able to ask questions in Parliament, the Minister would have to come and respond. And it has, I have noticed in the time I've been in Parliament how often now Ministers come and talk about a private sector company when actually, having seen some of the papers that Ministers don't see, they don't actually know as much as they think they do. And really, is it right that a Minister should be speaking effectively for a private company uh, in, in government? And wouldn't it be better if some of that information was in the public domain? The other thing, is, of course, is in terms of fair and open contracting, um, if the system, it, so the system does rely to a certain extent, and I guess you know, the Virgin West Coast situation was the obvious most recent public one, it relies on other bidders challenging the process. So if something has seemed a bit too cosy or a bit misread by Whitehall, the contract's perhaps been let badly, um, any unfair procurement or perceived unfair procurement would be should be called out. And actually the people best at calling that out, yes, some, sometimes Parliament might have a role there, but obviously other people with skin in the game or potential benefit would be doing that. So secrecy and confidentiality can prevent that happening. The, the, the secrecy screen or the confidentiality screen can prevent people seeing what's really going on. And um, we also need to um, improve standards. And having seen papers that not, are not in the public domain, it is very apparent how many contractors and we see this on the committee the whole time, are on the verge of going wrong a lot of the time, just about catching it before it goes completely wrong. And it's also a very bold step and difficult for government to step in. What does it do? Step in as the provider of last resort, as it has done with some of our rail franchises. Uh, with Carillion, it took you know, some work. It did a good, pretty good job, actually, of picking up the pieces there. But that's a very big thing. Government can't do that willy-nilly all over the place. Of course it's going to be working behind the scenes to try and make sure that a public service contractor from the private sector isn't falling over. Um, but if we have more transparency, we can all see what might be about to go wrong and, and call it out earlier, rather than have a tendency to hunker down in the bunker when things are going badly wrong, and then things can go, re when they do go wrong, they can go really wrong, as we saw uh, with uh, Carillion. And so there's some improvements, I think, that are absolutely necessary including in the sound system, clearly. One <laughs> um, is that a perennial concern of ours on the committee is about government data. Uh, government data is pretty poor very often, and we're, you know, we're fed up of rehearing, of trying to winkle out more data. We're often told it's there, and then they'll load it up onto a website in a in completely indigestible format. But worse than that, in a way, is when government's contracting too often, of course, I see, I should stress, as I, I can hear permanent secretaries moaning at me in, in my head already, that we do see the worst cases. But we too often see government data provided to a private contractor. The contractor believes, because it's from government, somehow it's got a gold standard and it's accurate information. Um, and so without defending any particular uh, organisation, <coughs> when the government lets a contract, let's say, for example, on prison repairs and maintenance, it's not counted the number of windows in the prison, the number of toilets in the prison, the number of uh, basins that might need replacing. And when then something, when, when, you're, when the contractor's into that contract, quite often they find the numbers that they thought they trusted from government are just not accurate, and then the pricing's out. And then the danger is, of course, that as that gets around the system, the pricing reflects the fact that the government data is not accurate. So it's a, it's a, a, a negative loop that, uh, that we can get caught into. The other thing is, of course, that contracts should be published. And actually, to a certain extent, Contract Finder is beginning to do that. But there's an awful lot that's not published. And government policy 
covers a lot more than what is actually put in the public domain. So you would think that government would obey the law, publish what it legally has to do, but actually, if it's government policy, um, that it should, um, for instance, provide performance metrics, um, uh, have uh, governance arrangements uh, clearly in the public domain, then it should be publishing that information. Um, and for example, one thing that I'd like to see is it says that three key performance indicators, it should be identifiable and, and clear in, in, in the public domain. Uh, I'd be interested to know if any of you know of three key performance indicators on major contracts uh, that you're not already very familiar with and where you'd find that, because we can't easily do that. And then I think the aggregate spend is also an issue, because if it's transparent, you'll see which organisations are collecting in taxpayers' money to deliver services, and where there's a pattern of behaviour. And something the committee feels very strongly about is if there's bad, a bad contract that should be taken into account if it's been badly managed in considering a future bid. It may be that it's a different sector, that was a particular team. I'm sure that people will find all sorts of arguments about why one contract went wrong. And it may be that both sides accept there's a bit of culpability. But if there's a serial series of failures or near failures, near misses by the private sector, I think it's important that that's taken into account. And that's something the committee believes. And my personal position, though it's not a strict committee position, I should say, the committee doesn't yet exist in its new form, so we hope next Tuesday. Uh, so this is previous committee positions. But um, I believe that freedom of information should be extended to the publicly funded contracts. So not, not to the whole organisation, but to the bit that's funded by the taxpayer. And when we looked at A4E, which was dealing with employment contracts, all its business in the UK was funded by the taxpayer. So how come it was hidden away as a private company, whereas if that had been provided through the DWP, we'd have been able to ask every question. It is more complex, and I recognise that's partly why we're still, this debate is still going on when you've got private companies providing the private bit of their work and the publicly funded bit of their work. And I hope that in today's session we can tease out how we can move faster to getting some of these transparency issues properly on the agenda. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, really pleased to be here today. So I'm from the Information Commissioner's Office and uh, we're going to talk about our perspective on this issue as the independent body charged with overseeing the Freedom of Information Act. Um, by way of opening, I think we'd, we'd recognise the importance of public services always striving for efficiency and effectiveness. And this has led to many different delivery models and that complex picture that, that Meg just talked about. And at the ICO, in terms of our approach to this topic, really, we're resolutely, resolutely neutral about these modes of delivery. But our focus is on the Freedom of Information Act and how it should actually deliver on its objectives in terms of transparency. And I think it's very important with the Freedom of Information Act to make sure you don't consider it in a vacuum. It exists for particular reasons why Parliament introduced the Freedom of Information Act in the first place to deliver um, further accountability, to be able to enable citizens to ask questions of public body and receive information back. It's, it's a key lever for accountability. We very much acknowledge that the Freedom of Information Act is one of many levers that need to be pulled to achieve accountability within outsourcing. It's not a silver bullet, and I'm sure there'll be many other mechanisms that will be talked about today. In terms of the public's expecta expectations as well, you can, we, we've um, detailed evidence setting out polling that we've done in the public about their expectations of this level playing field, that it shouldn't matter where a service is delivered from in terms of expectations of transparency. Our major intervention in this area was a report we published just over a year ago in January 2019 it was a report we delivered to Parliament under our functions under the Freedom of Information Act, really assessing the current landscape with regard to outsourcing. We undertook a lot of research. We looked at the background from the, the evidence of how the transparency system was working with regard to the Freedom of Information Act. And we observed, really, the gap which had started to build up as the models had evolved and what Nick talked about in terms of that figure rising in terms of the amount of spending now on outsourced public services and how really the Freedom of Information Act had failed to keep pace with that. So many organisations were delivering public functions but they weren't actually subject to freedom of information law themselves. We also actually used real life examples in our report, so drawn from our casework at the ICO when members of the public came to us 
and actually complain, but they weren't able to access information in certain scenarios. One of the most striking examples in the, in the report is an example of an NHS trust where a, member, where a member of the public made a request about a fire safety report, really, in a, a, a web of different contractual arrangements involving outsourced providers actually led to the, the legal position, which actually we had to uphold as the ICO, that the information wasn't available under the Freedom of Information Act because it was held by one of the providers and wasn't deemed held on behalf of the NHS trust, which was the, the public body. So we made a number of recommendations in the report that we, we put to Parliament. We talked about the importance of the coverage of FOI being extended, as, as Megas just talked about, in terms of using what we call Section 5 designation orders to designate uh, organisations who are delivering public functions, and also really recognising that this has to be proportionate. So it wouldn't be proportionate to designate all organisations who have outsourced contracts. Clearly, there's a very long tail. Clearly, probably the right starting point we highlighted in our report would be those strategic suppliers. Clearly, it's very important that there aren't sort of unwanted effects of a designation which would then put off smaller organisations or charities bidding for um, public sector contracts. So very much the level of transparency would therefore depend the government responded to our report and said that it, it wasn't minded to introduce these changes. Obviously, we're, we're the regulator and we don't make the law. Our job is to enforce the law. So obviously, um, we're realistic and pragmatic as a regulator and respectful of the conclusions that the government reached. But equally, we think it's important that this situation continues to be monitored, more evidence is gathered. And equally as well, we continue to look to see what we can do within the regime that we have at the moment. And I think the key emphasis we always want to place on freedom of information is both aspects of the regime, so the proactive aspects and the reactive aspects. By that, mean we, we mean the push and the pull. So the pushing out of information, the proactive transparency, the requirement to publish information under freedom of information law which is required by the publication scheme requirement in the Freedom of Information Act. And the reactive element, the pull, the ability of the public to actually request information. And particularly on that proactive angle, we feel as though there is more to do in terms of pulling together all of the information about the accessibility. There have been many different initiatives over the years, and we detailed those in our reports. There are positive um, <coughs> interventions on open contracting and contract finder, but equally we, dis we, um, we detailed some of the challenges of contract finder in our, our report. I think there's also a lack of awareness of the publication scheme requirements in the Freedom of Information Act. Every single public body who is subject to the Freedom of Information Act at the moment, and there are over 100,000 bo uh, public bodies subject to FOI, has to have a publication scheme which details the information that public body will routinely publish. And that includes an element which we've defined in our model publication scheme on our ICO website, which includes information about public spending. So that's what is spent and how it's spent. So particularly focusing on improvements around contracts as the baseline in terms of getting a better quality of information there. And we very much want to work in partnership with others to improve that. But equally around the pull part, the reactive part, in terms of request handling, that element is still important because the proactive information gives you a baseline, allows for routine monitoring, to look at KPIs, to see progress over time. But equally, the reactive request handling element is important, particularly for when things go wrong. So you see the baseline of the information, but in a member of the public or a journalist or a politician, wants to ask a probing question to say, well, why has this figure changed? So to take um, the outsourcing of a police custody suite, for example, say there is some, some data available about how that custody suite is operating and that is, that is published, but say there's a spike, you know, there's a, a spike in incidents, then the member of the public might want to ask questions about training, staff numbers, etc. And it's important that that information can be retrieved, which is why it's important that the contracts are actually scrutinised and we, we actually have better awareness of the, 
the model and um, contractual clauses that the Cabinet Office have developed. There is a model freedom of information and transparency clause. We observe that that's not always used, and that actually helps when the request is made to the public body who owns the contract, it enables them to more clearly go back to the contractor to seek information from them because it is held on their behalf. And that's the important element of Section 3 of the, the Freedom of Information Act. So I think it's important we focus on both push and pull. The last point I want to make, and it's perhaps a particular, particularly urgent issue we still feel, is the issue of housing associations. So we have written to the Grenfell Tower inquiry setting out, we think, the importance of housing associations being covered by freedom of information law. We feel as though it's a particular gap that these um, public services in terms of the delivery of, of these housing services to members of the public, but there isn't that accountability delivered by freedom of information, and we feel that's still a particularly urgent issue. So those are our opening thoughts, and we look forward to the discussion. Brilliant. Thank you. Kate. Thank you very much. Well, it's fantastic to be here, so thank you very much for the IFG for pulling us all together and for everyone, um, to everyone for coming. I'm really quite disappointed, um, I have to say, by this discussion because I came here expecting a feisty debate and vigorous, <laughs> vigorous argument with people um, sort of spitting and, and violently disagreeing. And I'm, I'm very disappointed to say, that unfortunately, I think there's going to be a strong agreement, actually, <laughs> across the panel, because I agree with, wholeheartedly with everything, really, that uh, Meg and Steve have said. Um, so um, I'm from Serco. I'm Group Strategy and Communications Director, also running something we've recently set up called the Serco Institute, which is a relaunch of a quasi-independent, but obviously it's got Serco in the title, um, think tank, um, which is designed to look at these issues and others <laughs> relating to public service delivery in general, but also um, contracting. So I'd say that, um, from my perspective, there's just a, a few points to make in addition to those that have been made. So at Serco, we are big fans of um, transparency. Um, what I would say is, though, I think it's about all public services. It should be, and I, I think you, you sort of alluded to that, it should be public and private for a couple of reasons, as you say, that regardless of who delivers it, they are still public services. They're paid for by the taxpayer. We need to improve them, the public eye, even as a contractor, as a citizen, I have a right to understand them. And I think we would like more data sort of across the board. It's quite interesting, one of the first pieces of work that we recently um, commissioned, um, which will be published in a couple of months, is a study of performance of public versus private in different segments um, across public services, looking at both quality and cost. Now, in order to produce that piece of work, we had to commission an independent economic consultancy to find the data to do so, which I think tells you something in its own right. It should not be so difficult to have a transparent understanding of how public services are performing across the board. But before we dive into that, I would just, I would just say that um, there's a couple of things to be clear about. So firstly, as a contractor, we already submit a huge amount of information to our government customer. Um, we really do. Um, so whether it's in monthly, quarterly, annual reports, strategic supplier meetings, um, formal meetings every six months with our Crown representative, um, and often contracts which have hundreds and hundreds of KPIs. So there is a huge amount of information that we submit um, to the government very willingly um, on a regular basis. I, I think the real question is, um, therefore, um, how do you outsource contracts and public sector deliver contracts become more accessible and more transparent to the public and to the citizen, and not just to government. But I think it is important to say that it's not like we sit here under a shroud of secrecy not saying anything about the services we deliver, we do. It just doesn't necessarily get published. Um, so the question is really, um, what information can the public see and how do we increase that? And I think I'd say that with three exceptions, which is personal data under GDPR, things that affect national security, or things that are commercially confidential, our presumption is always in favour of more data being available for the public. That's absolutely the right thing to do. Um, in February 2018, following the collapse of Carillion and us as a company having looked at these issues for some time, given the troubles that was besetting the outsourcing sector, we published actually what we called our four principles for reforming the way that government um, changes and contractors change their relationship with government. One of those we called the transparency principle, which basically said that for a lot of contracts, the presumption should be in favor of open book accounting and that we should every six months publish regularly KPIs on our contract 
um, delivery. So we are fully, um, really, in, in, in support of this. And I would say, just to be fair to the government, you know, I think they've made great efforts in this area, and it's not easy. There's a huge amount of data that government have, you know, sitting within their um, departments, and the investment um, required and the skills required to really make the most of that, I think, is a significant challenge and something that should be up for discussion given um, budgets and um, the, you know, the situation that governments find themselves in trying to do more for better, more um, for better, better for less all the time. But we've seen, I think, with the playbook published last year, that government have talked about um, publishing KPIs, um, three KPIs um, for, for all contracts. As I say, we believe that should be for public and private so you can fully understand performance and comparability. And I think we'd also go further than that, um, and we'd say that we, that shouldn't just be for new contracts, that there's no reason why we can't do that for existing contracts as well. So really fully support that agenda, and it's difficult to say so um, more, more effusively. I think when it comes to um, uh, the Freedom of Information Act, and whether that's the best vehicle to do that, and Steve is more of an expert on that than I, but again, I think it's important to say that we do receive freedom of information requests, both... Um, despite what, we, you know, what we're, I understand in terms of the formality of the law, both that come via our customer, asking us questions to respond, and actually um, um, sort of uh, more directly from citizens. Now, um, um, I think, so, so we do respond to those, and our presumption as a provider is in favour of disclosure wherever we possibly can, with only a few limited exceptions, as I said earlier. I guess there's a question about to what degree other suppliers treat that in the same way. Um, but certainly for us, you know, we do spend a significant amount of time responding to those. I think the real problem is, as Steve alluded to, is that the, um, you know, the information accessible there is what is defined as being held on behalf of a public authority, and that often in the contracts we hold with government, that's not clear, so you have this debate about what's included, what's not included. I don't know if that's a, you know, something terribly difficult to change, actually, when we are um, purely drawing up contracts. It wouldn't seem it was, uh, it was too challenging. The interesting example I'll just um, pull up there is um, we, we run Kilmarnock Prison in Scotland. Who, um, Scotland have obviously changed their freedom of information laws. And we, Kilmarnock Prison, although fully operated by Serco, has been deemed a public authority um, for the purpose of that act. Um, now, it's quite interesting because in reality, the only difference that was really meant to us is that we are dealing directly responding to the freedom of information requests rather than government doing it on our behalf or government having to ask us for data. So it could be that other suppliers are um, um, less in favour of disclosure and they make that more difficult for us. All it's really meant is that we have had to you know, hire people directly in order to fulfil those administrative obligations. And I think that's the only thing I'd say with this. Let's make sure if we change the vehicle for increasing freedom of information, that not, what we're not doing is just creating um, you know, um, a burden, as I, I think you'll talk about in a, a much more... Um, eloquent way than I, a burden of administration, that we're actually getting more data rather than just um, making the process more expensive. Because ultimately, actually, if, if you demand this of contractors, all that will happen is in order to um, pay for that, it, um, the cost will go back into bids that we, that we submit for government. So if we're not careful, we're just moving a function rather than actually improving a function. So I think a discussion about how that's best achieved would be great. So um, I won't waffle on, um, I want to hear very much from the BCSE perspective, but I think I'd just say that we are fully in favour of this. I think government has gone leaps and bounds over the last five, ten years and the last two in terms of um, making great efforts in this regard. But there's more to be done, both from the public sector delivered public services and for the private sector delivered public services. Thank you, Kaya. We might not have violent disagreement. We might have some violent... Carl, over to you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, so I work for an organisation called NCVO, which is an umbrella body for charities and volunteering um, services. And, and, and we estimate that, uh, that government spends about £16 billion a year with uh, uh, charities and other social enterprises. It's about just under a third of our total income. Uh, uh, if you look at charities, and about one in four charities now have some sort of direct financial relationship with a statutory body, uh, uh, quite a bit of which is about delivering uh, uh, services. I guess my first observation there is that this is surprisingly difficult data to collect. 
it's, we've been doing this for a long time now, and, and it's frustrating about how slow the pace of change is in terms of getting better data out of government. I couldn't at this point in time tell you how much each gov central government department spends on, on what they call the VCSE sector, or, or I would call charities. So uh, uh, I'm definitely in favour of mechanisms that, that give us better data, because we can't understand what the, um, what the implications of policy changes are very well at the moment with the data that we have. I don't know if it's a surprise to you that charities deliver uh, uh, services under contracts on behalf of government, and uh, uh, just to give you some examples, that can range from sort of the main caps and the action uh, for children's of this world that are sort of large hundred million pound plus turnover organisations, but it goes right down to small local organisations probably where you live uh, uh, that receive contracts as well. So we are sort of trying to, in some respects, design uh, policy and make judgments here as an umbrella body from, uh, well, SMEs probably uh, when I compare with the private sector, but right down to some quite small organisations, and this will impact on, them some, impact on them quite differently. So I have three broad observations that I want to make. So first of all, um, uh, we believe in, in openness and transparency. You know, the, old, the old saying that sunlight is the best is disinfectant and I think that applies to, to charities and voluntary organisations as well. So in principle I would support the extension of FOI to cover services that are delivered under contract by voluntary organisations. And indeed you know I mean as, as someone from let's call it civil society, I mean, I, I've got people that come to me and complain that, uh, uh, that at the moment that it's not a level playing field. So, uh, Michael, I've got a bunch of campaigners in Birmingham that are really frustrated about swimming pool provision in Birmingham. They think it's not very good and they want to compare it with other local authorities. But they're finding it really difficult to get the data because the leisure services function in Birmingham has been charitized. And therefore, it's no longer subject to FOI and they can't get data and they might be able to uh, uh, in other areas. I've got parts of my sector that actually for them, that they write books on FOI and, and how to use it as a campaigning tool and, and, and hold bits of government and indeed the private sector to account. So for parts of our sector, this is absolutely brilliant. But there are parts of our sector that are deeply worried about extending FOI to, to cover charities, uh, of which I'll go on to uh, uh, in a moment. So. If my, first, if my first point is that, in principle, we are in favour uh, of extending FOI, I guess my second point is about, well, we have to think about how do we do that, and I think we have to be careful about how we do that. So uh, uh, if FOI requests are, are going to be made to our sector, uh, I want the, the actual request to go to the public authority. I don't think most charities have the capacity and capability to start dealing with FOI requests. I think we have to think about where the cost of dealing those requests should go to. Um, I don't know if it, it probably won't be quite the same for our colleagues in the private sector, but I have members at the moment where statutory bodies are actually asking them to use charitable donations to subsidise contracts. Okay? I, I personally think it's inappropriate that we should be asking donors to subsidise the cost of meeting FOI requests. Okay? So we need to think about how we're going to uh, uh, implement this. And then we have to think about the criteria in terms of where we set the thresholds for uh, uh, who should be covered. Um, I think the thresholds as we sort of set them out now, they would probably exclude 99% of charities and voluntary organisations. That might not be what you want, uh, actually, and we might need to think about are there other thresholds other than financial thresholds in terms of how we set that. I guess my final and, and, and last point is about, uh, I guess I have a bit of nervousness about what happens when you extend this to charities. Now, I've never, been, I've never been a fan of thin end of the wedge uh, uh, type arguments and, and, and what happens once you sort of cross a Rubicon. But I guess from my perspective that, that many organisations that are delivering services uh, under contract to government, that's only one of the things that they do. What they're also doing is campaigning. 
they're standing up on, on, on behalf of the users of those services as well. And as a result, they have interaction and engagement with those users, and they might have information by coming into contact with those people that potentially you could see could be at risk of them being covered by FOI in the future. And that will undermine their ability to campaign against statutory bodies whilst also delivering services. So I guess we just have to think a little bit about unintended consequences on some of this. But I don't want to finish on a negative. I, I, I want to come back to what I said at the beginning. I genuinely believe that openness and transparency is a good thing. I think FOI is one of the mechanisms for doing that. Certainly for my sector, I think we have to think about other approaches to openness as well. But I am in principle in favour of extending it. Brilliant. Thank you, Carl. I'd like to pick up on a, a couple of points. Um, the first is on commercial confidentiality and what exactly we mean by that. Steve, you talked about um, from staff in outsourced services and it's a problem that the Institute has in our analysis of public services, for example, trying to understand what's happening in private prisons and the ratios to prisoners there. And we just don't have that information available. And Kate, you said that it's one of your three criteria, but what do you consider as commercially confidential? What's the information that you need to keep to yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a very difficult question because I think it will depend upon the service you're delivering. And I think sitting um, here, as I do from Circo, we've got a very diverse footprint, which is air traffic control, prisons, trains, ferries. So it's, it's quite difficult to say, a, a, you know, a very specific three sets of data which would cause us issues. I think, as I said before, our, our personal presumption at Circo would always be disclosing wherever we possibly could and not using commercial confidentiality as, as, a, as a sort of way of, um, you know, as a way of avoid, avoidance, basically, which I think, you know, it would be Steve's job to enforce didn't happen. But that, that would be our assumption. But I think you do have to be a little bit careful when you get into um, services that are frequently competed, for example, or highly competitive, and you're talking about numbers of employees um, it's very well known, wage rates are very well known. If you get into staffing numbers, you can very quickly build up a cost model so that you know exactly what a competitor is, is, is charging the government for a service. So it, that does get, you know, that when you're talking about cost, that, that does, that, that you do get into an area of difficulty. But as I said, I think, you know, that has to be used in the absolute minimum number of, number of cases. But it's very hard to say, oh, it's these three data points because it's such a mixed picture, if that makes sense. Yep. Carl, for charities, obviously companies have a, a duty to their shareholders. Charities have a duty to deliver public benefit. Presumably if a charity has come up with something that they think is commercially valuable, then actually there's benefit to sharing that more widely. So when we think about our public benefit, one of the things that I would argue is that being more open and providing more information about the services that we provide, that's actually part of our public benefit. It's not just the unit of service that we actually deliver. Uh, but don't let anyone kid you that charities aren't competitive um, or, or that issues of commercial confidentiality won't matter in our sector. They, they, they do absolutely. So I think I have to be slightly careful here by just assuming that this will work for everyone. It's what I said at the beginning. Some charities will be nervous about these concepts. Steve, do you, do you have a view on kind of what exactly should be commercially confidential and what shouldn't? Yeah, and it's certainly an issue we, we have quite a lot of evidence and, and experience of that the ICO, from having regulated the Freedom of Information Act since it came into force in, in 2005. And I think the starting point of freedom of information, is, as Kate rightly outlined, is, a, is an assumption in favour of openness, and that should be your starting point. But clearly, there will be commercially confidential information at play here. The Freedom of Information Act itself recognises that because there's two exemptions. There's a Section 43 exemption for information which would be likely to prejudice the commercial interests of the public authority or third party. And there's also a Section 41 exemption for confidential information. But the key thing there is that it's not a blanket exemption. You've actually got to demonstrate that commercial prejudice. And I think what we saw in the earlier days of FOI was very blanket application of exemptions, you know, whole contracts um, completely exempted and a lot of information really that the public would naturally expect uh, to be available wasn't. It's got better actually. We've produced a lot of detailed guidance that's gone into use and we're now seeing much better disclosure as we've established precedent. So there is guidance there. It's very important really that the 
the, the real risk and harm is properly assessed. Clearly, we've recognized in cases things like unique business models or things which really go close to the heart of the intellectual property in these situations. Often, there will be a, sometimes a, a stronger case for those being withheld. But in relation to a contract, the contract itself, the main core of the contract, would often generally always need to be available, but sometimes we've seen that there have been annexes to contracts which sometimes contain particular information. But the starting point must be that, that assumption in favour of, of disclosure. And Meg, it sounds like the, the PAC is, is seeing some information in private that would be considered commercially confidential. Is there, what, is there some of that data that you think should be public, and if so, what? What's interesting, so I think this is particularly the strategic supplier paperwork that we've had since as a result, and we now have to say the only bit of government department of Westminster White Paper doesn't leak, which is why government, we keep getting more information from government, so it's important. But it's, I think we're generally, my view is, is we're the Public Accounts Committee, everything we see should be as public as possible. However, there is a benefit sometimes to seeing those, those other documents. And actually, quite a lot of times you know the subject. So the strategic supplier papers in particular, if you know the the, the, the sector, if you know the sector, um, you, so you're perhaps a specialist journalist or you're an MP or a contractor who's following this closely, you would know nearly everything that is in there. The bit that was particularly confidential was the government's risk rating of those companies. Um, and we were very careful about any of the data because if, if you go out and there's a that that risk information is out there. And this is a really challenging issue actually for government about how it's having to work to assess the risk without making it public because then it can have a big impact on share prices, uh, perhaps less concerned about that than about the jobs of the people working in those sectors and in the supply chain, which is why we were cautious about not just blanketly publishing everything because we could easily do that, but we could have untold, make untold damage and we didn't want to do that. So actually a lot of the information that we see isn't as secret as government wants to think it is, but there's a caution inbuilt into Whitehall not to rock the boat in that sense. And if you're doing with commercial contracts, uh, commercial suppliers, there's a danger you inadvertently publish something and there'll be a natural inertia in the, in the Whitehall doing that because of course, the likes of circumstances, big lawyers could come in and, and sue if something went wrong. I mean, you know, there's a reality of that fear, I think. So my, my, it's interesting that I was in, in, in information uh, the the uh, Freedom of Information Minister in the Home Office for three years. So I saw an awful lot of requests coming through. Some of them were very weird requests. You know, they were just blanket requests for general information. They weren't very well targeted. Mm -hmm. And our view was, you know, Jackie Smith was Home Secretary when I started, and the view was to try and be as open as possible from the beginning. Now, that was easy for politicians to say, the Home Office still has some way to go on getting data clear, accurate, and easy to understand. But actually, if we had that data in a better way, actually, we should have fewer... FOI requests because someone should be able to mine the data. So I think actually we keep, we talked a lot today about um, extending FOI. We just need to be better at presenting information for starters, doing what government says it's going to do for starters. And then maybe we wouldn't need quite so many FOI requests. So for example, I think it's 24 prices for police boots up and down the country, um, ranging from over, well over 150 pounds to about 24 pounds. I guess there's some reasons for some of that, but not all. There's a similar difference in price for police shirts. Now, that really is a bit incomprehensible. <laughs> but, you know, why is that? And actually, we should be able to find that information. My dream, as I'm a Shoreditch MP, is to, is to have an app on your phone where you can just plug in uh, and check the data and find out how much your cost to kit out a police officer in your area compared with another area. And that, for me, is the model that we should be aiming for. So there's, there's, a, there's a, a stretch target, I think, they uh, call it in your sector. <laughs> Thank you. OK, I'm keen to get some questions um, from the audience. Um, can you please keep them short, ensure they are in fact questions and not long statements, uh, and please also uh, say your name and where you're from, and I'll take a few at a time. Uh, I'm going to take uh, here, here, and then there, and then a little bit more. Thank you. Sorry, it's Michael again. I I'm just interested, because the way things are going to work, the same individual can now ask the same question of two organisations and obviously risk getting different answers. Um, I'm just wondering what is the panel's view of that risk and whether coordination in response between government and private sector would be an appropriate response. And I know there'll be contractual provisions about coordination already, but that's because the private sector is not currently under that duty. I just wonder whether it changes when it comes under a separate duty. Thank you. Uh, then, yeah, question in the middle there. Uh, Gus Coogan here, I'm the founder of a public sector data provider called Tussle. Um, 
I think there are limitations with FOI requests because they are reactive and they're not really scalable. So I agree very much with Meg Hillier that it's about getting the data out there. There's a simple mechanism for doing that. The public contracts regulation 2015 stipulates that public bodies have to do it. Um, however, enforcement of that is currently poor. Is that on account of uh, capacity, conspiracy, or cock-up? Uh, thank you, and I will take uh, one more from the gentleman that's just here. Uh, yeah, uh, Nick Sharman, I'm um, a uh, councillor and chair of the Hackney Audit Committee, and I'd just like uh, to look at local government, or, or ask the panel about local government, because the accountability uh, mechanisms we have are not anything like as powerful as the Public Accounts Committee, and finding some way in which we can not only generate this information, but have it in a form that is both usable and relevant to lo a local level, where these very big strategic contracts may be strategic from government point of view, uh, they'll, they'll be much smaller levels um, that will be relevant at local level. So getting that balance between local and central government in, in, in the mechanisms we use, but really to emphasize that this isn't just about collecting a generation, this is about how we use it and how it is then a, a genuine vehicle for accountability at local level. Thank you. I'm going to start with Meg, uh, particularly your views on the kind of the accountability at the local level and the kind of the reasons at the national level, whether it's kind of cock up conspiracy or capacity. For I, well, I think if I'm being generous, it's capacity quite a lot because <laughs> IT systems are rubbish, algorithms don't exist in lots of these systems, and local government. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm hats off to the people showing the local people <coughs> audit under the, the, the act that sort of introduced. Um, in 2011, I think, was it? The, the, but anyway, they can go in, but actually trying to, to mine that data is very difficult. But for a local government to shift all its information to a system that you can interrogate better is a huge expense and very difficult. So I think there's going to be how we have to sort of draw a line somewhere and say, well, it wasn't perfect before, but we can't go back and make all of that perfect. Very frustrating if you're a public policymaker, or in your case, Nick, where you're trying to challenge uh, the system, because you, you know that's, that could be a long Blank, long-term blanket excuse never to be able to compare a new service being procured with a, an old one. But I think, I mean, you know, a lot does go into decent IT um, investment and that, getting that software that you can update regularly so that you can, you should be able to do something and get it on an app. Now, what is interesting is if you take, if this room instead was full of people in Shoreditch who were brewing company, setting up companies, they'd all have lots of ideas about how they could mine data. The challenge is how they keep that up to date. So you've got Unifrog, which mines data from universities and so on. And probably we should have a hackathon here instead of a group of us, you know, <laughs> this panel. Um, and if you had a hackathon, which is where you get, if those of you don't know, you get a group of techies in a room. Um, the National Audit Office has hosted one. They have sleeping bags. They stay overnight and they're given a challenge and then they try and work it through. We actually might make faster progress um, and it might be better for us all than if we sit here as talking heads, to be honest. But, but actually, that's what we need to do. I think, so I think it is partly capacity. And, I think there's, and what's the incentive for people to do this? It's a huge expense on top of what they're already doing, for, whether it be Circo or whether it be a public body or whether it be a local authority. I can't imagine in Hackney, where we've had 40% cuts over the last decade, um, the mayor going out and saying, it's OK, everybody. We're going to invest in fantastic new IT so you can find out all the numbers. Most people will just go cold on that. So we've got to, you know, we've got to, but we've got to start building that in <coughs> from day one with new things. And, and government is way behind. I mean, the data dumping that goes on is embarrassing. Um, and you know, I do see some permanent secretaries to their credit squirm a bit when we point that out. Um, but they just say, the data's there. It's in a, it's in a spreadsheet. You think, well, yeah, but how are you going to find it? It's like a needle in a haystack, isn't it? And that's one of the problems. As you say, we uh, have done a hackathon here before. I don't, don't think we allow people to stay the night. Uh, uh, but <laughs> That's why you're, you need to do that. Yeah, <laughs> the the most recent one was actually day. on departmental organograms, and the fact that even those aren't available tells you something about the transparency yep. issues that we face. Steve, on that uh, kind of cock-up conspiracy or capacity issue. <laughs> yeah, I think there's, um, there's, there's a number of different perspectives on what works in this area, and we've obviously had one indication there that sometimes the... FY requests themselves are the, the best mechanism to deliver this. And I think it, it's a range of factors we see at play when we look at the, the issues which come forward with a lack of transparency. It's about getting sustainable governance in place, of building this into the DNA of your organisation, of building this up over time. And I think the, the response which was made there about are FOI requests which are reactive the best way to tackle this problem? 
alone? The answer is they're, they're probably not, because to the other point, they could be different, it's hard to build up the picture. But you, you need that um, layer of transparency there because the proactive transparency, which is so important, builds that baseline, the data you can monitor over time, check against KPIs, check against progression on performance. All of those things are really important. But when things go wrong or there are unusual circumstances, the public still have the right to make that request, and that's very um, important. To pick up on the point about inconsistency as well, I think you know, actual training for requesters is a good thing as well. You know, um, Campaign for Freedom of Information does it. The BBC is excellent in training its journalists, and actually you see that in the reporting sometimes of BBC news stories where they've made a number of requests to public bodies about issues relating to, to spending, and that's because they have good training in place. So there's the, the number of different factors at play here to make this work effectively. Okay, on that point about the kind of the potentially doubling up on uh, the accountability if you extend. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think that's one reason why actually it, it might be, it might be, it makes sense just to put, you know, leave it where it is in terms of tasks. Otherwise, if you're doubling up on something, by definition, you're doubling up on the cost required to do it that essentially everyone in this room is paying for. Um, I think they're on the coordination piece. I wouldn't be so worried about that. I mean, in terms of the, I think, you know, not in a conspiratorial way, but in an appropriate way, given that government is our customer, we will always coordinate and liaise with government, our customer, on information we release. I think that's right. Having said that, you know, it would always be up to Steve to still hold us to account for that. So it's not going to change what we say. But I think it's, you know, it's one of the interesting questions I think government contractors face as the gap between as the gap between government and the citizen closes, and citizens become much more powerful than they were, say, 100 years ago, in terms of that relationship, that we're going to get increasingly stuck in the middle between what the citizen wants and what government wants. But I think um, government pays our bills, they are the customer they are, are, are um, who we are contracted to, so we'll always keep them you know, coordinated in the loop with what we do. I think that's only right and fair. Carl? Um, uh, in response to Gus and Nick, <coughs> Uh, the risk of sounding a bit woolly that there is a cultural issue here that we've got to solve and that is this fear I keep coming across all the time of being found out mm -hmm. not found out because you're doing something like bad but but fear of like oh we're a bit rubbish and someone might work that out and <laughs> so you know I, what I want to do is then try and sort of highlight organizations that have been brave and come out and been open and actually shown how it's improved what they've done so there's a charity called engineers without borders that produces a failure report every year that talks about what went wrong um, there is an organization called data kind that will come in and help you work with your data and open it up and the more that you sort of open it up the better your data will get and i think we've got to try and give people the confidence that opening up can actually be a positive thing that will improve services mm -hmm. Great, I'll take a, a few more questions. So we'll take the two people standing at the doorway there. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. My name is Maxine Kerr, and um, I'm a campaigner for the human rights for the unborn. I would like to um, ask a question to Meg Hillier, MP. Um, I would like to actually hold the government to account on the way that um, they've been spending public's money on abortion, and especially on abortion providers. The fact that a baby costing £680 per, per unborn baby, um, is it justifiable, the fact that 9 million babies have been killed um, is this a question about at, the, transparency? at the cost? And the fact that there's no transparency, actually, regarding these um, abortion providers. And I really would like the Public Accounts Committee to look into how it's spending our, um, our money, really. Okay, it's gone you. out of proportion. Thank you. Thanks. Greg um, Rose in Newington. Um, different question. The, um, we touched on the, the fact that if the data isn't collected, then FOIs can't harness that data. And Nick, you mentioned the hackathon, uh, fantastic hackathon you did uh, to, to try and um, uh, deal with the fact that the government, despite all the commitments to publish organograms, doesn't actually do it. Uh, and part of the reasoning for that within government is, is apparently the government don't know who all their uh, uh, staff are, um, which again uh, suggests a, a challenge. There have been select committee report after select committee report, Meg, as you know, uh, calling on the government to 
collect the data for its own cost base to enable effective comparison with outsourced public services. Every report on PFI says, sorry, we can't, how do we judge one without the other? Given that everyone has already been calling for government to collect that data, yet it doesn't, what are the leverage points to persuade government to actually do it? How can the departmental boards, etc., be persuaded to do what they say they should do? Thank you. Great, thank you. And I will take uh, one more question uh, over there. Um, yeah. Um, do the current um, Brexit talks offer an opportunity to remove the current prohibition in most public procurements on past performance as a criteria for future award, done for a, a, a well-meant reason to improve competition within the EU after the Aarhus judgment, but actually means that most competitions don't take any account of all this data, even if you collected it on performance. Brilliant, thank you. Uh, right, I'm going to go to our panellists, and this is also an opportunity for closing remarks because we're, we're coming to the end of our time. Carl, would you like to go first? Um, so, leverage points. I mean, I, of course, would say civil society. You know, we should be holding government to account, and indeed we do, as Maxine is, is, is doing there. Um, my, I guess my closing remark is that FOI is only one tool for openness, and we, should, we shouldn't just be talking about transparency, we should be talking about openness and a culture of openness in our services. Thank you. Kay. Yes, um, thanks. Yes, a lot to try and summarise, isn't it, for closing remarks. I mean, I think overall I would simply say that I think data is a massive opportunity for society today in all different respects. Um, I think the government's, you know, made really good efforts over the last five to ten years to improve what it does with the huge amounts of data it, it has. I think there's further to go. I think to your point on, on the Brexit piece, and I think it comes out in the government's playbook as well, I think the past performance piece is really, really important. Other, otherwise, you know, there's, there's no, well, there are obviously incentives to deliver well, but it's really important that people are rewarded or not for, for good, um, good delivery. Um, on the part about incentivising departments, my hope is that because of the, the um, you know, because of the good intent, as well as because of the multiple uses of data in other ways to improve public services, that actually the data strategy overall of government will improve significantly, and one of the many good outputs of that will be the overall level of data that is available to the public. So, yeah. Thank you. Well, I think the, the key message for the... the the challenge right now is to really progressively improve the proactive disclosure of information. We've touched on this a number of points this morning and I think continued sort of incremental steps towards this I think with every actor playing its role and we know we can't do this alone as the freedom of information regulator and indeed it's got a wider dimension but you know further conversations with government, with the contractors, the charities, everybody's got a role to play <coughs> and identifying what these incremental steps are or what the barriers are in terms of what, what are the gaps and what are the issues which are making it challenging? Is there need to be for better guidance, better toolkits? What, what are the, the things stopping this so we can start to put in place some incremental steps to, to make a difference? And that question actually about whether the data is collected or exists, often it does exist, but it's not collated. And I think trying to learn more sometimes from the requests you receive as a public body can be important because if you look at the trends in the, the requests you receive, you can actually pick up sometimes where the demand is. And learning from the history, looking at, at that across a sector, we think is a, is a valuable source of information to start to identify where you should target the, the data you should publish proactively. Brilliant. And finally. Yeah, to, to pick up on, on this lady's question first, sorry, it's very difficult to see both of you over there, the light's right in my eyes. Um, it's not something that the Public Accounts Committee would look at for a couple of reasons. One is that these are costs that will be provided by uh, the, the run-through charities or individual NHS trusts, and we don't look at those level of detail. The National Audit Office doesn't audit those bodies, and we work, base our work and our numbers on what the National Audit Office has responsibility for. But for, for under freedom of information, a number of those bodies can and could potentially provide information. Um, on the issue um, that, that Greg raised about data and what's available now, I think one of the key things I think we've all highlighted is it's really important that um, we get better data from public bodies. So I absolutely agree. If there was a better baseline from the bodies that have been providing a prison service or a probation service, I don't, don't just pick on the MOJ, but it's got lots of things changing at the moment, um, or in education, then you can do something. It's interesting that education schools are being encouraged to reduce their costs 
And one of the things is a bit of comparator work. But when we pushed the department and said, how can a school compare, whether it's well, you know, getting its photocopy paper cheaper the, as cheap as it should be or its energy costs, they said, oh, well, the data's up there. And how on earth, as a school head teacher or chair of governance, would you be able to find that information? And actually, if you look at schools, I mean, if, as a parent, how would you find where the information is? So there's some real basics that need to be done. Um, but if you are, say, a, chair, a, a governor and you want to find this information out, it's quite hard at the moment. So the public sector needs to really step up. And if it doesn't, then it's not really, we can't, you know, it can't be criticising the private sector as, as much as it might need, want to. You know, it's easy to blame someone else, but the public sector's got to get its house in order on data. Thank you. On that um, leverage point, obviously, uh, the uh, Prime Minister's Chief Advisor, while he doesn't have a particularly glorious history when it comes to freedom of information, um, if these kind of assorted freaks, weirdos and experts are going to apply machine learning algorithms to improve the government, then they are going to need some of that data. So perhaps potentially one of those leverage points could be number 10 itself um, if it wants to deliver on its promises. Um, so with that, I'm going to um, bring it to a close. If you haven't already done so, I'm sure you already have, uh, please read our report on how you improve improve the transparency of uh, procurement uh, in this country. Um, we'll also be launching a new report on uh, Thursday next week, uh, assessing how successful the government has been at implementing reforms since the collapse of Carillion uh, two years ago. Um, and there are still a few places left at the launch event if you want to sign up. I'd like to thank you all very much uh, for attending today, and my particular thanks to Gowling for supporting the event. Uh, and I hope you'll all join me in thanking our four fantastic panelists. Thank you. Thank you.